Welcome to episode 10 of the ProMobile podcast, the audio interview programme for mobile DJs. I'm Eddie Short, ProMobile's editor and podcast host. My guest for this edition is Alan Marshall, a full-time wedding DJ based in Andover down in Hampshire. Alan is well known in many mobile circles for his passion and advocacy for DJ training, and he has served as both a branch chairman and national chairman for the National Association of DJs, and currently is still part of the National Committee as the Education and Training Officer. This interview was recorded earlier in the year when Alan and I were both attending the Mobile Beat DJ convention over in Las Vegas. And during our conversation, Alan not only tells his story that spans over 30 years as a DJ, but also shares his views on a range of related topics and offers ideas and advice for other mobile DJs. My guest on this episode of the Pro Mobile podcast is Alan Marshall, who will be well known probably to most of our listeners, ex-chairman very recently of the NADJ, still heavily involved in that, a real ambassador and um, of education for DJs. Alan, thank you very much for spending some time with me. Absolutely, my pleasure. And so... Everybody knows you, sort of what you what you're doing now with your uh, your passion for uh, educating DJs. But I want to go right back. Where did it all start for you? How did you first become a DJ? When I first started being a DJ, well, technically I started being paid as a DJ. It was either 1979 or 1980. I'm old enough to have, you know, the memory's not what it used to be. <laughs> uh, but it was certainly around Christmas. It was a wedding. It was my first actual paid event. Wow. I was paid in lights because I didn't have any. <laughs> uh, I'd convinced my um, dad to um, purchase a Fowl Ranger double decks from the catalogue, his catalogue, because a friend at work had said, could you do our wedding? Now, they were happy with me just turning up and playing music and bringing records and probably using their hi-fi. But I thought, nah, you know what, let's just go for this because I'd always love music. However, if you strip it all the way back... When I was preschool, I used to take my mum's portable record player and used to go to my grands and her friends and play music like Victor Sylvester and um, Old Shep by Elvis Presley <laughs> and play this music. So I hadn't realised that until recently when I started thinking, well, when did I actually start? So really, you were So what? entertaining people at probably about four years old. <laughs> Entertain people by playing music. By playing music, like absolutely. Four years old, wow. Yeah. And so that first wedding, uh, how did that go? Well, the first wedding... How um, old were you first, sorry? Well, the first wedding, I, I, was, um, I was either 16 coming on 17, or I was just 17 when that happened. That was for, for a friend. The wedding, yeah, it was... It, I'd always loved music, and I always kind of had an idea of what to play and when to play it. I certainly back then couldn't consider myself a mixing DJ. Um, in fact, that back then I wouldn't, don't think I knew what a mixing DJ was. But I knew I knew the classics. I knew the um, I had a really good broad knowledge of music because I was collecting music and I was collecting music from the 1930s onwards. So I, I spent a lot of time at record fairs buying everything. In fact, every penny from my youth that I was given for presents, for Christmas, birthdays, earned, went on records. Or went on vinyl. Or went on vinyl, absolutely. I was a complete vinyl junkie. Um, so I knew how to do that. So when they invited me to do this, now it was kind of a relatively easy one to do because there was a lot of people there that I knew because where the job I worked, my first job from school, a lot of the people from that works were invited along. So it was kind of cool because they all loved me already. So I had a good audience. The interesting fact is that that wedding, the lady, the bride, I actually did her third wedding last September. <laughs> so with 37, 38 years gap between two, the two weddings, I was rebooked, <laughs> which was kind of really cool. Yeah. And so the... You convince your dad to buy the, the twin deck console from the catalogue, yeah. and then they paid you in lights. So what were the lights that you? Well, the light, the lights were, they were, the lights. My initial lights were you, 
for the older listeners will remember, um, well, we'll certainly remember a shop called Woolworths, and they had the, the three kind of light bulbs. You had the red, green, and blue light bulbs in a plastic kind of case, and they kind of just went sound alike because they had a little microphone in those. Now, the thing was that I got paid in two of those, and the value of those was about one and a half times my weekly wage <laughs> that I was earning then. So, you know, I thought, oh, okay, might be something in this. And then from that point, it was going up to shops like uh, Roger Squire and, you know, buying rope lights and fuzz lights and and, and parkans and all the stuff that we had back in the day. Yeah, because it, you know, 1979, 1980, light shows and mobiles were either DIY or very basic. Yes. And so from that first wedding, how did you develop as a DJ? What was the next booking? Well, the next booking was probably months and months later. And of course, like a lot of DJs, I started off really just working for friends. You know, anybody and everybody that I came in contact with would never leave the room without me knowing, without them knowing that I was a you DJ. Were a DJ. Yeah, and so you'd you'd work for you know beer money, you'd work for anything. I you know I just wanted a love of playing the music and moving a room. So I you know I'd I'd have probably paid to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know you 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 know anybody, all the friends, all all the guys from work, etc. They're having a a birthday, having a party, having a barbecue. I was the guy that they would drag along because. Back then, we had more power as a DJ because we had a vinyl collection. I was having this same conversation with somebody the other day. You had to have that vinyl collection. Only DJs had all the songs on vinyl. Pretty much for a night. No, nobody else at home. People would have the few songs that they liked, and the but nobody would have a full collection of music. And then there was the gear. The gear cost money. Absolutely, absolutely, and we had that power because it was it, back then. It would be more expensive to go out and buy the records than book with DJ. Whereas, you know, times have moved on, and sadly, that's not the same case now. You don't even have to buy the music. So, but back then, the the power, the fact that you know, we we spent most of our lives either DJing or Saturday afternoon in a record shop, pouring through vinyl uh, like we were discovering gold or diamonds because this 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 <laughs> searching w- for those gems the, so, searching for those gems it was an obsession because mm-hmm. you 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 traveled up to london to look for the american imports because you know you wanted to be the coolest dj around so you were looking for that track that nobody else had and so whereabouts did you grow up alan i grew up in a, a village um called tadley well it's a town now and that's in north hampshire we knew we Basingstoke and Reading it's kind of in that triangle dead center it's um most of the listeners would probably heard of Aldermaston well Aldermaston is literally feet away from Tadley you come out of Tadley you're in Aldermaston it's simple as that so the atomic weapons establishment there that was pretty much on our doorstep doorstep. (laughs) and that was the area that you were working in as a mobile DJ Absolutely. I mean, those days I would, you know, those days I didn't, I didn't even drive. So those days for any booking I got, my dad would take me to the venue, I'd help me that. set up. And at the end of the evening, he'd come back, help me pack the gear down and drive, and you drive home. me home. Up until the point I found a, a mate who wanted to get involved. And then long, long, long before Only Falls and Horses, we used, our DJ was in the back of a Reliant Robin. <laughs> Three wheel, three wheel, Reliant Robin. That's where we used to turn up at some very exclusive venues and some very ex- um, well off and well healed houses in a Reliant Robin. <laughs> but you know, back then, nobody frowned at that. You know, they were just glad you were there. And so, I guess you sort of cut your teeth, as we all do, playing all sorts of different events and venues. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I absolutely every conceivable life moment uh birthday anniversary wedding charity function uh, yeah we 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 kind of did anything um pretty much if it had a pulse and a paycheck we would go there it it, it was simple that we we wanted to be um or i wanted to be out there as much as i could possibly get out there and what was your business called at that time 
Well, the, the disco was called back then Hot Wax. Now, this is really for the older, older listeners. There was a movie out in the uh, late, well, early 80s called American Hot Wax, which was about um, the American DJ Alan Freed, uh, who coined the phrase rock and roll. Yeah. Which featured the likes of Little Richard and Chuck Berry and etc. And I was blown away from that in the cinema. And Hot Wax, of course, was um, slang in America for Hot Record. So I thought, oh, cool, that's, we'll have that name because no one else has got that name. That suits me. So we were, we were Hot Wax for probably 10, 20 years. And so were you working as a mobile DJ alongside a day job career? Oh, absolutely. I had a day job. Um, I dabbled occasionally in clubs, but I certainly had a day job. It wasn't, you know, I've had a day job pretty much most of my career up until probably about, I, I've been full-time now for about nine, maybe ten years. And so but have you always been a DJ right from that, from being 17 and doing that first booking? Oh, yes, absolutely. You've been a DJ I've never stopped. All the way through. Never no, stopped. no, my, my, you know, two, you know, scary two thirds of my life have been dedicated to being a DJ because it's the love of my life is DJing. I absolutely adore it. And so over those years, I guess you, through the 80s, early 90s, built up a big road show. Well, I was never, I was never kind of, um, yeah, the lights, we got bigger shows and bigger shows. And I, you know, I went, fell into the same trap as, you know, we all did back in the day it was you know to differentiate yourself from other DJs you bought more kit the big the more kit you had the more successful in your head you were yeah until we suddenly realized that actually we had made no money (laughs) we just bought lots of shiny gear that was now you know outdated by the next shiny gear that had come in but yes um setting up a show back in those days could take a couple hours you know putting all the different moving heads and moving mirrors and et cetera. The, you know, you t- we, we kind of turned it into a mini nightclub, which is definitely different now. And so you had a bit of a defining moment, didn't you, at BPM, one of the very first BPMs? Absolutely. Um, I was there with my wife, my darling wife, Anna-Marie, and we were there walking around and we saw the seminar room and thought, oh, this sounds interesting. And it was a... A gentleman um, who's become a friend, a guy called Ken Day, who um, was doing a presentation called The Soft Cell. So I was intrigued. I knew it wasn't going to be about soft cell, but I was intrigued at what it was going to be. And we sat in the room, and he talked about specialisation, basically, and he talked about specifically specialising as a wedding DJ. And it was at that point that I had my eureka moment. Those I really loved doing were weddings. So at that point, you were still doing um, music for all occasions. Pretty much. I was the jack of all trades. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, But that kind of changed everything for me. At that point, probably didn't even know where the internet was, let alone on it. I had no marketing material per se. I worked purely off of uh, referrals. I was known as the party guy. I'd pretty much play as cheesy as you wanted to go. As long as everyone was smiling and having a good time, I was never super cool DJ. I had no intention, still still have no intention of being super cool DJ. I'm quite happy being the cheesy guy, because, yeah, you know, or being what the client requires me to be. But off the back of that, we di- we kind of discovered a whole another world, which drove us to fi- discover America, uh, Disc Jockey America and then eventually come over to Las Vegas um, in 2009 to do a workshop with the guy that I absolutely credit with changing my life, a guy called Mark Ferrell. And we did the first of the Mar Becker workshops, which um, definitely blew my mind. And to a certain extent, it's still doing so. So from that process of Ken making you realise that weddings was were, were your focus... You then went and did the Marbecker workshops and, and learned how to do more with what you were doing with weddings. And I'm guessing that prior to that, you were only doing an evening. You were an evening DJ. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I when I when I first came out in 2009 to do the Marbecker workshop, the first one, and 
Um, the, the slight backstory on that is about a month before I came out um, here. So, yes, I've been full-time for about eight years, if, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, eight years. Because um, I got laid off from my day job, which at that point was IBM. So I'd been there for like 16, 17 years. And I sat down with my um, Anna Marie, my darling wife, and we'd already booked to do the Love Story Workshop and the Master's Ceremonies. And we had a payout. We had some redundancy money, but not a great deal of money. And there was a decision made on, well, do I go or do I guarantee I can pay the next three months mortgage? Wow, okay. And that was it. There was no no savings. It was literally, we are absolutely leap of faith here. If this doesn't work, I'm not quite sure how we're paying the mortgage. Um, So, yes, I took that leap of faith and came out. But I, I did drop the love story at that point. I subsequently did it, but I did the Master of Ceremonies. I had no concept at that point of what a Master of Ceremonies really was. The first day of the workshop was grueling, to say the least, because I was in a room with guys that I I saw as, wow, they get it, and I don't. Which I've since you know, realised wasn't the case, because they were all at the same place I was, else they wouldn't have been in that workshop. But you felt at the time that they were ahead of... Well, they, it's not so much ahead of me. They had a better understanding because, of course, in the States, the concept of a DJ just turning up to do the evening isn't even a concept because, the, you know, as a wedding DJ, you're there from the drinks reception, you're there through the, the meal, and you're doing open dancing after everybody's finished eating. It's not necessarily the whole thing of just DJing the evening. You know, like in the UK, where we broke it down into two parts. Yeah, the 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 idea of evening guests is is not particularly something that happens over here, is it? In in America, not not really. I mean, it, it, we, we it's been created by the venues over in the the UK because yeah, you know, would they get a chance to sell food twice, which <laughs> yes. is kind of cool for them. Uh, but it's a the problem is there's a disconnect, and through doing the Marbeckas with Mark and Rebecca Farrell. I discovered that there was a whole way of connecting everybody emotionally. So it kind of changed the whole way I started thinking about what I was doing. Because I thought I was the guy that turned up to play music and fill the dance floor. Which is part of what I do. But it doesn't fully describe what I now do. So, yes, that was a big eye-opener. And, yes, up to that point, you're absolutely correct. I didn't think anything. I thought, well, we turned up at kind of six o'clock set for half past seven work on till 12 you know they're meant to dance they don't dance probably wasn't my fault <laughs> <laughs> probably just a bad crowd yeah, but bad yeah crowd. to my shame i used to feel that way now I, i'm mortified by the fact that i used to feel that way because absolutely we're in charge that's why they booked us so laid off from ibm yeah spend the uh, more the money that could have paid for the mortgage for three months on uh, a workshop in america yeah, you go back. How do you start selling yourself to couples in the UK to do all day hosting when it's not something that anybody else is particularly doing? Well, that was a leap. That was definitely a leap because that that I went back with two mindsets. I, I went back with a mindset of I needed to let the DJ community out there know that this was actually existed, but I also had to educate or inform my clients of how much more we could do so buzzing with what I'd learned I piled back and instantly put my prices up instantly got hit a brick wall where you know the venue said well you can't get that round here have you market priced it seriously dude this I'm a, I'm a DJ I'm 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 seeing myself as a, a talent now um I don't do the same as the other guys do so how I'm not quite sure how we market rate that because that's what we used to do back in the day. Back in the day, you'd figure out the, what the local DJs were charging. And if they had more gear than you, you'd probably charge a little bit less. <laughs> and if you had more gear than them, you'd probably be brave enough to go with the same rate or just push a little bit higher. But you, you based it not on a good business sense. You based it on what, you know, what everybody else is charging. Certainly, yeah. So yes, it was a it was a tough sell, and it took probably a good chunk of 
the first year. Luckily, I had a venue that loved me and they were pushing me work still and they were giving me the weddings at what at that time was still a good rate, was still a good rate. It wasn't going to be anywhere near to what I was aiming for, but it was a good rate to, if I, it was a volume game at that point. My my mindset was, before I went out to the States, was, right, okay, I'm do I go looking for another job or do I give this DJing thing the blast because, yeah, I'm getting a little bit older. If I'm going to do it, I've got to do it now. And my mindset was, great, I just need to do about 100 bookings a year at the same price that I'm earning right now and then do the maths and we should be fine. At least I'll pay the bills. That's good in theory. But the problem is you're then fighting with everybody else is about the same price. And that, and that kind of hurt me a little bit. But we made enough. We survived the first year in business and survived to the point that put enough credit into the, the bank account that I could then go back to the States the following year to do Marbeka again. So there was a, definitely a plan and definitely um, my future of keep coming back to Vegas was definitely on the cards. And so how did you go from an evening DJ to, I'm guessing at the moment, you're mainly just doing all-day weddings? Pretty much mainly doing all-day weddings. Yeah, If a client wants an evening DJ um, and I'm not booked, I have a choice. Some of the times I'm more than happy to pass that out to my colleagues within the business and say, look, have a free one on me. Because, you know, full day wedding in an ideal world, I want to do one of those a weekend. I really don't want to do two 17 hour days because yeah. that's what my days at a wedding typically look like now. So you only work one day a week? I kind of, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's what my, 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 my dad did. That's his soul. Would have, um, would have said, so that son, when you're going to get the real job? Or, yeah, what, what, so what do you do during the rest of the week? Well, I run the business. I work really hard. In fact, if anything, my day off is Saturday night at someone's wedding, or day off is at the wedding because that's I've, the fun part. Yeah, I've done all the prep. I know it's going to work. I know. I know how much fun this is going to be. I'm so excited the day before a wedding that I'm probably I'm sleepless. I I, I get no sleep the day before a wedding. I'm a nightmare. I ask my wife because I'm so excited with nervous energy that how cool is this going to be tomorrow? Um, and I think if I ever lose that kind of, you know, I'd stop instantly because for me, there'd be no reason to keep going. It's the, the same excitement I had back in 1979, 1980, the fact that I get to play all these cool tunes. But now, because I've got more tricks to, you know, in my arsenal, I... I kind of know where I can move people emotionally now. I can actually, you know, create moments in a wedding that would never have existed if we hadn't been there. And so how do you go about planning all of that? How do you plan those moments? Where does, where does the process start for you? The process starts pretty much with me with from the initial meeting with the clients. We, we sit down, get and to know and them. And this is before they've booked? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm... I'm not prepared to take a book in unless I meet them first. You can't book me over the phone. You can't send me an email. You can't send me an extremely big check and go, can we just see you on the day? I don't want to do that. My wedding, I need to make sure that they're the right fit. I need to know that they're the, they're the couple that I'm absolutely going to be excited the day before their wedding and can't wait to do it. So do you have a picture of your ideal clients? Do you have a demographic that you go for? Yeah, I mean, my, I'm finding I mean, my demographics changing all the time, but I'm finding that my, my, my personal demographic for a couple are probably now in their 30s, moving on, probably somewhere between 30 and 40. It might even be their second time round, etc. I still do weddings. For, I, I, I think... I think the youngest couples I've done in the last probably eight years have probably been in their mid-twenties. I certainly haven't done any younger than that. But they're, they're, they're couples that know they, they not only know what they want to a certain extent and want good entertainment, but they're more touchy-feely. They're more you know, hearts on their sleeves. 
they they kind of love the kind of emotion they love the stuff that we can do with the love story they love the the fact that it's kind of be kind of be all flowery and magical and so by sitting down and meeting with them you get a feel if that's the kind of person they are and by you telling them what you do they'll get a feel for if that's what they yeah, want absolutely. we're, we're kind of looking we're looking we're looking for um an idea of their personality and the kind of you know what what makes them tick what what why my, one of my you know kind of known in the uk i'm the why guy because i absolutely adore the word why i in a meeting i'm always asking it, it, to the extent of you know why are you having a disco because it's a relevant question you know are you going to dance are you dancers is your idea of fun party the dance floor follow or is it just um, everybody around you and some background music while you engage with all your guests now I'm not judging and I'm more than happy to do both of those I am certainly not preoccupied with my my success is a, a sweaty dance floor um, my success is big smiley faces and everybody having an amazing time so I'm happy to you know I don't judge it the, the client at all apart from the ones that are looking for something special, the ones that are looking at kind of hearts on sleeves and kind of you know sitting there in the meeting, holding hands and keep looking at each other, bang, that's my couple. They're the right people for they're, you. They're the right couple for me because I know that I can, I can do something for them that they're going to remember for a very long time. So I only want to work for those because the whole process, typically if I meet a um, couple, say, anywhere between 12 and 18 months before the wedding is we're going to we're going to be sitting down for a full day wedding we're going to sit down probably two to three times before we ever get to the wedding day so after that initial consultation meeting mm-hmm. that you decide that there's a right fit they yeah. decide they want to book you yeah. you'll then meet another two or three times absolutely from between that point and the actual wedding day as a as a minimum i i offer unlimited support so if you know, if a bride suddenly, you know, as we, we had a few a couple of months back, we had a bride that was absolutely panicking two months out from the wedding, etc. It's like, well, let's meet up, have a coffee. Let's sit down and have a chat because, you know, oh, it's, it's fine, I can do it over phone call. No, look, let's just meet up, have a coffee. You know, I need, I need you to walk away from this now in the happy place again because this this is how it works. This it's, We're working with you, not for you. I mean, I know heard that before but it's it the relationship between me and my clients is really really important that's why a good percentage of my clients are still good friends because we correct we between us we create something that they they didn't expect they could have something that they needed but they didn't know they needed so i'm a resource i i you know the planner will you know, we give them a planner, but the planner is really trying to just give them ideas. And it, the planner is probably more full with ideas and tips than it is full with tick this box and fill that in. Because I truly understand that even the couple that this is the second time around, chances are, if this is second time around, the first time around, it was very basic because... 10 years ago it was so 10 years ago you know when when i when i got married i've been married twice um you know this this is the one but i the first time around the, the idea the evening you you got married you went to the pub had a drink then you probably had the village hall and the dj came in and he set the music up and people kind of danced or didn't and people being england drunk probably more than danced and then towards the end of the evening, they wouldn't stop dancing because they drank too much. But that was kind of how weddings were. So the whole point of the planner is to give them an idea of what is now possible. Okay. And so this is a, a document that you've put together that is it kind of a workbook that they work through? Yeah, it's, yes, it is. It's, it's, there's about 36 pages. Um, it's something that I developed with my good friend and colleague, Gary Evans, Osgood. We, we worked on this together and it was born out of the questions we were getting from clients and the challenges they had. So we understood that, well, if this couple in front of us is having that challenge, this is not unique. Those couple, There's couples out there that really don't know what, they've never done it before or if they did it before, it certainly wasn't memorable. 
So we need to be there to to coach them, to hold their hands, to push them in the right direction. But you can only push them in the right direction once you've got to know them. And that comes down to the whole listening and really really drilling down to what's important to them. Why why the, why these things that could we could do on the evening? You know, there's lots of stuff in the planner, lots of stuff in the planner. But every single time that a couple go, oh, we love the idea of that, I still ask why. Because that will enable me to take something like a shoe game and create a shoe game that's completely unique for this couple because I understand why they want to do it. And so there's lots of different ideas in your planner. Some of them will be appropriate for different couples, but it just allows them to see what's available and gives you that starting point to talk through what's what's possible and kind of drill down to what's right for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the point of the planner, I, I hesitate to... The planner is not a, a menu. The planner has got examples of things that we've been requested to do by our clients and things that couples may have seen that they think are cool. Nothing in my planner we are ever going to do the way we always do it. It will be completely unique to them. And it might be turning to create, we create something completely different, purely off the back of, well, you know, you wanted to do a shoe game. Why did you want to do a shoe game? Because we've seen it and it's quite fun. It's like the Mr. and Mrs. Quiz. Okay, so. So how do you want your guests to be interacting with this? Do you want, um, would you would you like us to, um, you know, the questions, how, how would you like us to go with that? It, it, once you start to understand why this is important to them, you can then create something. So effectively, your planner is a conversation starter. It's Absolutely. A, it's, it's a way of talking to them and finding out what they really want. And then you can build something unique from that but you, you couldn't just sit down and say, right, what do you want? Because they don't know. So you need to have that giving those ideas. But it's not, as you say, not a menu. It's just a way of starting the conversation. Absolutely. I mean, and so how does it develop? Sorry, Alan. Um, at what point do you go from just kind of chatting ideas and why, asking why questions mm-hmm. to get to the point where you're actually starting to flesh out actually what's going to happen for that particular couple? Well, that's constant. That's throughout the whole planning process. As they talk through the different planning meetings, etc., and we talk about things that are important, we may drill down on one specific thing. So that may develop that. And off the back of that, that may... So, you know, you, you, there's a father-daughter dance. So what, why is it important you dance with dad? How, you know, because... And we end up with stories. We end up with, um, you know, why, why is that important to you, etc.? Why, why would you want to do this? That then can create into something completely unique. It could be a little story about dad and why dad's important to the bride or you know, a memory from the bride that, you know, it, you know, tugs at her heartstrings when she thinks about her dad. Because at the end of the day, you know, th- this is the first guy that she fell in love with. Um, so it's kind of important. So, so developing that will then I can create something that not only is standalone. There's a transition, and we can then go to something else. So it 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 creates a flow to the day. But in the perfect world, we give them a plate sheet of plain paper and go, "What do you want it to look like?" Because that's kind of what we're doing. But we we understand uh, when I say we I mean me and Gary that developed the planner we understand the fact that yeah that would be really daunting not really fair because uh, we need to help them as much as we can but we but there's this very thin line that we walk as DJs as full day you know service between overwhelming them with so much stuff do you love my stuff I do all these things (laughs) Which ones do you want? Or under-appreciating under what, what can make it special because it can be that just that one magic moment. We, we have a, I, I truly believe that we, we have to really be careful we don't stamp our personalities onto other people's lifetime but, events. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's true. I think that's something that perhaps has happened a lot in the past, that the whole mentality of this is the way I do it. Mm-hmm whether it's that reflects the bride and groom's personalities or not. And obviously what you're trying to do is create something that's 
unique to them and makes it about them, not about you. Totally. I mean, it's it it it's a, there's there's a saying that I learnt really early um, when I first came over to the states, and it was it's not about you, um, and that came from Mark uh, Ferrell, and it took a little while to internalise that. If I'm honest, it took a few years to really dig down to understand what that really meant. But my job is to always put them first to the extent of uh, my ego, my personality, even potential more bookings. If it's in the best interest of the client for me to fall on my sword, I will throw myself onto my sword because they are the only reason I'm doing it. An example of that is the end of last year, we introduced a couple into the, the wedding breakfast. And everybody was cheering. We played the, I played the music. I always worked with an assistant, so that's where the we's coming in now. And they made their way to the top table. And as they sat down at the top table, ladies and gentlemen, once again, the brand new Mr. and Mrs. Everybody cheered. And the place was just so buzzing. And I turned and uh, went off to check check and make sure everything was coming out the you know the, the duty manager was going to be bringing the food out straight away and, and made sure that everything was going to be perfect for him i forgot that the friend of the bride was actually going to say grace ah. and now they brought bread rolls and starters out and people started eating now i've realized that i've made this mistake so i've walked back into the room and i've gone first over to the friend of the bride and said oh, i'm so sorry absolutely missed this i've mucked it up i'm so i'm mortified that i did that but i'm going to make it right and she she was really nice about it she said you know it's okay i wasn't bothered if i did it etc and i said well you know stick with me and i went across and i had a quick chat with the boy and said i've got to admit i made a mistake your friend was going to do grace i know you told me that it was on my planner it's just in the excitement and everything i dropped the ball what i'd like to do is I will set this up so we do grace after starters. So starters have been cleared and I stepped into the room and said, ladies and gentlemen, I need to make a confession. I absolutely made a mistake. What was meant to happen after they, um, our couple made their way into the room was there was meant to be grace from her dear friend. Now, I absolutely might do that. So I am... Absolutely taking responsibility. You can hate me for it if you want. But what we're going to do right now is something very unusual. We're going to do grace after you've actually eaten. <laughs> so I, I'd like you to pay attention to the friend of the bride. And she delivered probably the most amazing grace, I have, and no pun intended, I'd ever heard, which was full of emotion, was full of love, and was personalized to the couple. Now, for me, I was still mortified that she had to do it then because I dropped the ball. But I was so glad that I was prepared. You know, I believe that you should absolutely put your customer first every single time. Yeah. You know, they may hate me for it, but I'm going to make this happen because it should happen. Yeah. So you, you could have just left it, not had the grace, yeah. and then nobody in the room would have known you'd The bride said it was fine. The, her friend had said it was fine. It was been so easy to just go, oh, okay, really sorry, and gone off back to um, what I was doing, and, and no one would have been the wiser. No one, would, no one would have judged me. No one would have known. Yeah. I was prepared to be judged yeah, by falling to, on to my sword, a mistake, and then that actually and then, turned into a, and this an great, important moment. Yeah, absolutely, it, it was. Yeah, blew me away. What? She, yeah, the the grace that she did. I thought, wow, I, I'm so glad I had the opportunity to hear that. So let's talk a little bit, Alan, about any DJ. When? How did you get involved in the National Association of DJs? Well, any DJ. Well, I've never really planned anything in my career. Everything kind of happens uh, for a reason, possibly. What had happened is I came back from the first Mar Beckers in 2010. By that was the point that was happening, and I was kind of boring the pants off for anybody in the room. You need to, you need to do Mar Becker. You need, you need to get the getting what you're worth. You can charge so much more. And I was doing that round, and some people were listening, and you know, we 
was able to organize the first of the Marbeckers over in the UK. And around that time, because I was making a noise, because up to that point, yeah, I was kind of well-known in my village, <laughs> but I certainly didn't consider myself well-known anywhere else. Facebook and the internet's a wonderful thing. You can be famous now. You can have friends all over the world on Facebook. Some of them are real friends. But I was approached by the chairman at that time, Paul Arnett, who had had a request locally for a branch to to be put into formation for the South Central, which ultimately became South Central. Now, if I cast the net back a little bit further, a little bit further, in the 1980s, I was on the committee of the Thames Valley Disc Jockey Association. Oh, really? I was on the committee of that. That is ultimately what became, became NADJ. NADJ. So yes. I was with people like Mike and Margaret Jordan, who were kind of the, the backbone of the Thames Valley. And that was, it was the Thames Valley Association. It was based around Sonning in Reading and... Pretty much one Sunday a month, we'd all meet up and do that. So, so I'd already dabbled. I'd already, I'd already given my time to um, help other DJs and promote the professionalism within the industry way back in the nineteen eighties. But then, life kind of took over, family and kids, etc. And you know, you get busy, and I wasn't able to give my time, so I'd stepped away from it. So when Paul asked me, well. Not would you be would like to be involved, but would you like to be the chairman? <laughs> Which I'm not quite sure is a, yeah the, the way to go. But obviously and that was they the needed chairman a, of the new branch. The new branch, absolutely. So I I thought about it before I made the decision. I decided to travel around to a few of the existing branches, meet up with them, bore them about the whole Marbecker and the, the money stuff. <laughs> uh, um, uh, not everybody agreed with me. Funny enough, there was people that didn't like me for it um, because I was doing the American thing, as they would put it back then. But ultimately, with uh, a colleague and friend, Chris Burford, who had tried to start a branch a couple of years earlier that I'd attended the initial meetings, which sadly had never really got going, we thought, well, let's give this another punt. Let's try this again. So that's what we did. But the premise for me was always going to be, well, if I do this, this is the way I'd like to do it. And because of where I'm coming from, my world's been completely turned upside down by education and doing workshops. That's kind of going to be where I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be coming from. So I absolutely, you know, I will get involved with a branch, but that branch has got to have, as it's parts of its meetings, a very strong element of, Trying to education, education. Trying to get, trying to allow DJs to take the next step, showing them there is a door they can step through. Of course, not everybody wants to step through that door. So, from being the chairman, straight in at the top, <laughs> I, while I was the chairman, I was then asked to be the secretary nationally, and from secretary nationally, I was then asked to put my name forward for national chairman when Paul decided that he, he was a little bit tired at that point of of it I mean I, I don't that sounds disrespectful I, I think there's there, I think there's a point where you, you kind of get to and say well we need new blood yes etc yeah. and, and, and Paul I, had done a few years Paul had done a few years at that point so I think that he, he acknowledged the fact that well okay I need to step aside and someone else needs to do it so one fateful well, not faithful. One one trip back from BPM. BPM has a very big part of my life. Wo- woven into the story, yeah. Woven into the story. I'm sit- We're sitting down somewhere in, in Birmingham. I couldn't tell you. I wouldn't be able to find it again. We're sitting down in an Indian with Tony Winyard, a good friend, Ryan, and obviously the London chairman, and Derek Pengali, who are kind of pushing me into a corner of you should put your name forward as the chairman <laughs> of this. Uh, you know, we think you should do this, blah, blah, blah. So I was kind of, um, yeah, not pushed into doing it because I would have never done it if I didn't think I could bring something to, different to the table because, you know, I certainly didn't want to just do a caretaking job because I see no point in that. So that was the next inevitable step onto the chairmanship. And you did two years, did you, as, as I did chairman. two years. I mean, me from my 
standpoint, I think that two years is about right. Three years is as much as you should do, and then you need to hand it over. And part of the process is that as a chairman, you should always be looking for who your successor is going to be and and honing them and pushing, nudging them in the right direction because it has to it has to have a continual life. It can't it, it can't stagnate. But you've returned. You, you've passed the the chairman role on to Pete Hawkins now. Absolutely. But you you've stayed on to the committee, taking on uh, a new role, which is just championing your. Uh... Yeah. So my, my so my new role. So part part of um, Pete Pete had a um yeah his rider was yeah I I I, t- I take this on, but Alan, I'd like you to still be involved and. I, and I'd like you to be the education and training guy. So it kind of went full circle back to where I, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that's going to tell everybody you need to do education. Um, I absolutely believe in it. I wouldn't be saying it otherwise. I know how it's the only tangible thing that can really push your business forward, doing formalized training. Because the problem with experience alone is not enough. Experience enough. Uh, experience will tell you when when you when you screw up you probably aren't going to do that again great that's experience when it hurts you go towards pleasure you walk you go away from pain but the tendency is to get into a very comfortable place where mediocre you know what yeah yeah kind of you you know what works and yeah if it isn't broke don't fix it no, nobody's complaining no one's complaining it, it works but you well, you're not necessarily achieving the the, the full scope of what could be achieved. Now, here, well, here's the rub. I think the, the problem with no one's complaining is not to your face. <laughs> yeah. And there's the, there's the damage because DJs, you know, I may get lynched here, but we, and I, I put myself in this category, we have moments of when we think we are so much better than we actually are. We, the ego takes over. We need an ego because you need to be able to get out there. You have to, you have to know that you know I can do this and I can do this well. So ego is important, but an ego can take over. I think it's important to have that reality check, and the reality check is a workshop, because in the workshop, you have to bear everything. And then within a workshop, and I don't say necessarily specifically marks. I, that's what route I went, and I'd absolutely be an advocate for marks workshops. Um, but I've also done. The entertainment experience with Bill Herman. Um, I've I've sat in on lot so more of Derek's than I can care to remember. I've pretty much thrown myself into every possible education, even to the point that I'm now doing the online stuff with Phil Morse to keep yourself fresh. I think if you're not doing that, if you're not stepping into an environment where you can be coached you risk is you're you're going to continue repeating what you've always done and that's fine if you're comfortable with getting what you've always got but i it was never a money thing for me it was the money yeah the money's come because obviously my service has gone up um what i can do for couples is you know is worth more but my passion is to it's that couple and that those big cheesy smiles at the end of the evening. They are bouncing around like they've had the best day of their lives. That's that's the reason. The, that's the driving force behind and, what you do. And doing. that's why I do the, the training because when you care that much that you can create something unique for a couple, you then have to find a way of how you can do it. And that's where the training comes. It's not just a case of copying what other DJs do. In fact, it's... It's absolutely not copying what other DJs do. If anything, we should be looking at the wider entertainment arena and looking at what actors do, what musicians do, what the guy, the, the album you're playing, what he does. The prime, the best example, yeah, looking out of a window, looking slightly past Eddie at the moment, out of a window in Las Vegas, and there's a big banner up there for Bruno Mars. <laughs> Probably the best um, uh, entertainer on the planet at the moment. No, he didn't get that way by just picking up a guitar and and kind of 
winging it. And that's what we shouldn't do either. We, we, we need to look at how, did, how does he entertain the crowd? You know, you know our mutual friend Mark, who, who spends a lot of time at theatre, understands the fact that all of this is all of this matters. How, yes. how you how you create that emotion within the room? Why why an audience at the end of Les Miserables um, can't help but stand and cheer? Wouldn't that be cool at the end of your at the end of um, the wedding that they stood and cheered for the bride and groom and that was because you created it. I can't think of anything cooler. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So, Alan, all of these podcasts, I finish with a few uh, quickfire questions. <laughs> so, uh, let's see how we get on with these. So, there's one thing that we all share as DJs, and that's a love for music. We've already talked about your record collecting days. So, is there a band or an artist, either new or, or going back into those crate digging days, that maybe listeners may not have come across not necessarily something that you're playing as part of your DJing but just through that love of music is there an artist or a band that would uh, not have come across <sighs> that's difficult because I'm a pop DJ I've always been a pop DJ so most of the stuff that I play most people would probably heard of um, music was uh, I was an absolute massive massive fan of a guy called Teddy Pendergrass who was the force behind Howard Melvin and the Blue Notes and certainly then went solo before he, before his untimely death. I loved that kind of fully soul music. Though from the early days, I pretty much rock and roll was my thing. Yeah, I was. I'm. I'm in Vegas. I was. I adored Elvis. I adored the rock and roll. The the early stuff. So something that nobody's kind of heard of. Well, I'm assuming there's some young listeners in there, so both of those are probably could possibly. Be. <laughs> I, I'd hope to think they know who Elvis is, but Teddy Pendergrass. Yeah, I think I'd I'd advise if you don't know who Teddy Pendergrass is, go and listen to some of his stuff because if you want to hear music with real soul, that's the guy. Fantastic. So the other thing that most DJs have in common is a love of gear. <laughs> what one piece of technology couldn't you live without? Ah. <sighs> I'm, I'm probably the least gearhead person you know. Um, <laughs> True. Yeah, I um, technology I couldn't live without. Well, right now I absolutely other other brands are available, but my Pioneer SX, I as a MIDI controller, the the things I can do with that now that weren't even possible a few years back, because I made that trend. You know, I I was vinyl. In fact, I was reel to reel. <laughs> so reel to reel, seventy eights, RPMs, forty fives, albums, all the way through to CDs, to uh, to um, MP threes, to computers, etc. So I've kind of gone the full gambit over the years. I've, I've done this, but I would say that it allows me to be more present. Okay. Whereas before, when I had the SL twelve hundreds and you know and the mixer, etc., you you're spending a lot more time on the mix and a lot more time crate digging, looking for the next track, etc., whatever. Whereas with a computer and an SX now, and I know, yeah. Again, I said I'm not one of the cool DJs, so <laughs> there will be guys out there that absolutely go, "Oh, he's not a real DJ. He he kind of does it that way." Um, yeah, I, I've 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 no problem with technology. I have no problem with the sync button because the music is the backdrop. What I what I'm doing is entertaining people. And so, by not worrying about having to match beats and things, you're being able to look at yeah, the crowd and I see can, what's happening. Yeah, I can I can pretty much yeah absolutely I can be pre- I can be more present, which for my for the brand that what I want to do. Is absolutely key. That's what's important. Yes, absolutely. So, sticking onto music again, uh, have you got a secret floor filler? A song that you have been playing recently that maybe it's not an obvious choice, but when you've played that, you're just finding that it's really working and uh, filling the floor. Secret floor filler. So, something new. It doesn't have to be new, but maybe just something that you're playing that isn't an obvious choice. I would say um, at the moment I'm 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 dropping a lot more Earth, um, not Earth One Fire uh, Average White Band. 
Okay. So early doors pick up the pieces because the obvious one to go to and you know and DJs of a certain age, I am a DJ of a certain age. It's easy to go with superstition. Mhm. Stevie Wonder, that's an obvious one because yeah. most people are going to get up and dance to it. But pick up the pieces. That definitely got a funk to it. And so early doors, I'm I'm kind of playing the, those kind of tunes that are going to tap into people's memories into um to get people tapping along, etc. So I would kind of go because I'm that DJ of a certain age again. I would go back to kind of the funk, the jazz funk of the eighties because it's got a good groove. And let's face it, uptown funk, the stuff that Timberlake's doing, the stuff that the Bruno Mars is doing, pretty much that's where its roots are. Yeah, so it works. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, pick up the pieces probably. Great. What would your one piece of advice be for a new or aspiring mobile DJ? <sighs> well, here's the yeah, that that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I would say my advice would be to absolutely invest in yourself. The best money you're ever going to spend is investment in yourself into training and education. And if you're if this this is new to you, it's going to be a lot easier than it was for dinosaurs like myself who had <laughs> who had thirty years of bad habits to try to correct. So I would say that the gears, there's the old saying of all the gear and no idea, and I'm not saying that to be disrespectful. What I'm saying is work on being good. Work on being talented, being, a, being, an, being an artist, being able to create something that's unique. Don't copy. And look at the wider entertainment. Look at the likes of Bruno Mars. Look at the, these entertainers. See how they entertain Look at how Ant and Deck on a Saturday night, I'm assuming they're on a Saturday night, rarely have a Saturday night off, but how how they entertain. Yeah. And and host. And host. They're the best example of host. They always put the act first. They always make the person they are working with, even if they're having fun with them, they always make them the star. They don't make themselves the star. And that's the trick. If you can, if you can do that, and that will take training. That will take, you know, mentorship. Find a good coach. You know, inv- invest in some of the Marbecker workshops. Some of that stuff's becoming going to be coming uh, available online very soon. Do that because if you start thinking about what you do in a personal way, rather than well, if I buy six more moving heads, or if I buy you know, I, I can make more money if I have uh, love letters or sparkly dance floor. That's fine. I mean, people, couples love the stuff. That's easy to sell. But what if you want to be have longevity in this business, first of all, understand your music, understand the history of your music, and then work on your talent as an individual. Become the best you you can be. Great stuff. And so finally, Alan, after 40 years... Why do you well not quite but you're getting there (laughs) (laughs) why do you still do what you do i absolutely adore it i can't think of a better job in the world i absolutely i am as i said earlier on um i just i just get the shivers the day before an event i am so excited to be able to go out there and create something of value for my clients um at the moment that stops well so will i will i always be the dj guy well you know, at the moment, I'm kind of doing a lot more of the master ceremonies because I can drive a, an event forward emotionally with that. So, but at the moment, I absolutely adore music. That's what keep, keeps me going. If I haven't got music playing in the van, in the house during the day, I start to wilt <laughs> because music is absolutely my life. So, the chance to is a privilege to be able to go out there and play music to people that and 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 give them an opportunity to step out of the challenges of their their lives if they're going through challenges they may have had a bad day at work they may they may they may have come come to the wedding and you know not everything's going right for you know with their relationship etc but you've got them a give them a chance to forget all that 
and just smile and have a good time. Now, I can't think of a better job. really can't. Fantastic. What a good way to end. Alan, thank you so much for uh, sharing some time with me. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you.